Welcome to Misunderstandings of the Mind podcast, the space where we explore common misunderstandings of how life works, allowing us to gain new perspectives on health, wealth, relationships, and much more. Life doesn't have to be hard work. It can be a flowing collection of experiences if we learn some simple truths about how our experience is created. Through this understanding, we realize that at a fundamental level, we are all already whole and perfect. Okay, we're live. Hi, Judith. Welcome to Misunderstandings of the Mind podcast. Nice to see you. It's very nice to see you again, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for agreeing to do this with me. And um, on this subject of depression and... um, you know, when we when we were bouncing messages backwards and forwards, I, I it what it wasn't on my mind at first depression, but I thought, you know, I'd done all these recordings and it was one of those ones that no one wanted to touch. You know, it was kind of like no one really seemed not that they didn't want to touch it. It's not that I asked people and they said no. It was literally that people were drawn to other subjects. You know, like first and and um, but then as we talked about, it, I thought it's such a big subject. You know, in in the minds of people and um, something that I. You know, as we were just talking about, had um, spent a lifetime look like I was trying to escape from or avoid or do something from, um, you know, from the age of nine years old, being given my first official psychiatric diagnosis and actually put on medication. I mean, that, I mean, just looking back now, it seems crazy being put on antidepressants at that age, you know, back in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, carrying that with me you know like that oh I'm a depressed person you know it's kind of like there's something wrong with me and um they they even quoted stuff about you know something wrong with being there's been something wrong with my mind at the time you know and that, that I showed signs of being slow and so on and um and then going through my addiction which was like uh you know and being on antidepressants and you know being um on drugs that were given to me to help me stop taking drugs because <laughs> that's what they did that's what they did then you know if you had a drug right. problem they give you more drugs to to help you stop taking drugs right. so i was so taking <laughs> yeah taking antidepressants taking methadone to stop taking drugs and taking street drugs at the same time because i couldn't stop anyway mm-hmm. and um so i was always in some form of you know like being given some form of diagnosis and then actually when i got clean when i went to rehab and my life started to change externally i started to get a bit of a career i looked a bit better you know i was able to uh, have a place to live and pay the bills and stuff like that I eventually came to that um part in my life where i trained to be a therapist and like and um and it was suggested to me that I had to, that what I'd been running away from with my addiction this whole time was, was the death of my father. And that, um, that you know, and, and every time somebody said that, I'd burst into tears. So I really believed them, you know, because it was such a yeah. sensitive thing for me. And um, it felt like I couldn't even say the words, you know, without it, without it bringing up such emotion for me. And um, so I really believed it was true. And they said, you need to, you know, the, the thing that you've been running away from, you need to face it, you know? So it was kind of like, so it seemed true. It felt true at the time. And um, even though I felt a lot of reluctance, you know, to do that, because I was like, okay, you know, like I've been using drugs all this time. I've been committing crime. I've been doing crazy stuff to myself, living on the streets. She, okay, now's the time to face this stuff. So I, as I went through my training as a therapist, um, which took five years in total 
you know, it's kind of like the, the, the amount of times when I was sat in a group, because it was an experiential, it wasn't an academic training, um, crying, you know, like absolutely numb, lost, you know, like wondering what was going on was, was um, you know, I lost count of that. And um, mm. a little story for me was that my daughter, I mean, this must have been about eight or nine years ago, but my daughter was two or three at the time. And um, I, literally, like I used to go in her bedroom in the morning um, with fear that she was going to be cold, you know, in the bed. And it was like, I would go in and, and um, I would peep in through the door and she had this uh, cabin bed and it was about this high, about, about my height, you know, uh, head height. So I could see, and if I could see her moving, you know, I'd feel a sense of relief. And if yeah. I couldn't, I would go over to the bed and I would slide my hand in slowly from the edge of the bed till I got a sense of warmth in my hand. And as soon as I could feel some warmth, it was like, you know, like a sense oh of relief. Gosh. And it oh, was, um, wow. yeah, I still feel sad talking about, it, you know, because it was such a dark time. And it was like, and I really thought that I had to go through this thing that I'd been running away from my whole life in order to get better. That's just how it looked to me, you know? And, and um, yeah, I guess that's my starting point for this, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I'm curious to know how you resolved it. Did you just sort of finish getting through it and feel better? Or did you suddenly wake up and go, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like after I stopped, finished training, you know, unqualified as a therapist, built a practice, I was still, you know, I'd still consider myself with um, a, a sense of misery, you know, in my life, but I was, uh, but I was somehow acting out on addictions, you know, to food, to exercise, to other, to money, to other things, even though I wasn't taking drugs and I was still practicing as a therapist saying my life was great. You know, it's kind of like there was, if, if you really sat down with me one-to-one -one and, and I really felt safe, then I would be willing to, you know, tell you that I actually thought my life was terrible, you know? Um, so for many years, I just suffered on like that and struggled until I found, the three principles understanding where it was just like a waking up from a bad dream. You know, it was literally was like, you know, a, a momentary um, experience um, of just thinking, wow, where have I been literally, you know, like I'm just looking around me and seeing the beauty and the grass and nature and feeling light and, and warm and like everything was going to be okay, you know, and um, that, like I hadn't been really suffering. I hadn't been on medication or anything for um, depression for a long time. And probably um, before I found the principles, probably about five years or maybe a bit more since I'd been to any, you know, psychiatrist or anything like that. Um, I, I found ways to cope in my psychology. I found what, you know, what you might call dysfunctional or, or actually wisdom in disguise. If you're looking at it through a three yeah. principles perspective, but I, I struggled through, you know, one way or another until I found this understanding to where I just became free and have never, yeah. you know, thought about it since. Well, the, the reason I was curious about that is that, you know, when I first began my education as a young girl, I was very drawn to helping people and was interested in psychology. But uh, the first psychology course I took was so depressing <laughs> that I changed my mind. I thought I can't do this. You know, I just can't. I can't be thinking about all these diseases and everything that's wrong with people's minds. And I, you know, looking around my life, I saw a lot of people who were stressed and had various problems, but you know, it just seemed like, you know, the, the way you, you'd get this worldview that, that people were just so damaged. So I just, uh, I, I 
never pursued it until much later in life. And I pursued it after I found the principles. I wasn't a psychologist until afterwards. So I thought that was, uh, that's kind of, I came about it uh, in a different way than most people. And that's why I'm always curious about people's journey. But I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing that, um, that your own wisdom was taking you on the journey. You know, even though you might not have realized it at the time that you didn't stop looking, that you didn't stop, you know, that, that little, it's, I always say that people have a little pilot light inside and that pilot light never goes out, even if you don't like the stove for a long time. <laughs> and that little pilot light is the resilience and the hopefulness that we're born with. You know, so we don't give up on ourselves even though sometimes we feel hopeless, we don't give up on ourselves. And um, I think that a lot of times when people have been depressed for a long time, um, you know, they're at that tipping point where I've got to keep going or I'll give up on myself. If I give up on myself, then I've got to give up on life. And something brings people back from the brink, you know, again and again to say, okay, I'll keep trying, I'll keep trying. And it's, it's sad to me because, it, um, because the effort is focused on fixing the past, which you can't change, or fixing the outside world, which you can't change, you know, or fixing other people around you or moving to another place or starting a new career. You know, people come up with all these answers, you know, I'll feel better when or if. And... Um, you know, the thing that I love about the work that we do and the three principles is that we don't try to fix anything because nothing's really broken. And, um, and that's, but the, for people who are depressed, that's a very difficult thing to say. You know, if you say to somebody who's been depressed for 30 years, you know, really there's nothing wrong with you. They laugh at you because 15 people have told them 15 different ways there's something wrong with them and all the terrible things that have, you know, happened to them. And, and they're like, how can you say a thing like that? But the interesting thing is, in my experience, at least, and I think a lot of my colleagues, if you, if you plant that tiny seed, you know, well, what if there really is nothing deeply, seriously wrong with you? And that all, all that appears to be wrong is, is an artifact of thought. You know, what if, what if deep down inside, you know, there's that little pilot light is still burning and that's what's whole and perfect and always ready to light up your world. Um, you know, people can't forget that. I've, I've found many times I've, I've had clients, you know, yell at me in the first session and say, how dare you? I've been to 15 people more qualified to you. And they've all told me I had this and this and this and this. And, you know, they'll, they'll make a big statement on behalf of their diagnosis which is the reason they came for help in the first place, because they don't, they're tired of it. They're tired of feeling bad. But we have a tendency to think that we're defined by that diagnosis. Once you get one, you know, it sort of becomes part of your idea of who you are. And so, you know, I'm very persistent. You know, I'm not, uh, I don't argue with people, but I just, I'm very persistent in saying, well, just consider it, just consider it. See, see what occurs for you if you just consider the idea that maybe, maybe that you're fine. Maybe that, uh, you know, that your mind, you could change your mind about a lot of things. Maybe th something could change inside you that would make all of this kind of disappear. And they're like, no, you're crazy. I don't know why I even wanted, you know, and but I, I'm very persistent. And then half the time, 
by the next session when they come back, they're like, you know, I've been thinking about what you said and I keep thinking, what if that were true? Wouldn't that be easier than everything I've been doing all these years? And that's the open, that's, that opens the door to their discovering their own power. You know, that we have the power within ourselves to see beyond um, all the thinking we've been doing, no matter how long we've been doing it. And um, it's interesting because when, when, I, um, when I first went to West Virginia University Medical School, where I, I was on the faculty there for 13 years, along with uh, Dr. Bill Pettit, and the two of us were running something called the uh, Sydney Banks Institute for a while, and then uh, became an initiative for innate health because, um, you know, we, rather than having a person's name to it, we wanted to be more descriptive. But during that time, we, we, we lectured to a lot of doctors and residents. He, he was, a, as a psychiatrist, was in the Department of Behavioral Medicine. I was in prevention, and I was working with people in the field of, you know, preventing things rather than treating them. And um, in all the time that we lectured, we, we came up with a, a definition of depression, which upset a lot of people, but people couldn't get it off their minds. And this, this is the definition. Depression is the weight of negative thinking taken seriously over time. Depression is the weight of negative thinking taken seriously over time. So like everybody takes negative thinking seriously for a little while sometimes. You know, that's part of the human experience. You know, something happens and you have a reaction to it and your head fills up with negative thoughts. But what creates depression, you know, the what a diagnosable, observable depression is the fact that you don't stop thinking those thoughts. You know, that your mind is constantly churning with, you know, all these negative thoughts about yourself, about your life, about any hope you might have to be different or about what, what's possible for you. And over time, uh, that manifests, in, it observably manifests. You can see when people are depressed. I mean, it's not like it's an invisible thing. Um, and yet it's hard for them to believe that it's not their permanent state that it has anything to do with negative thinking taken seriously over time. So um, it's, it's not an easy topic, I think, sometimes to bring up because depression is so widespread. Um, and in, interestingly enough, when I first went to West Virginia, um, that year a study came out that, that, that actually created uh, a large part of uh, a new movement in psychology towards positive psychology, but, and, it, and it created a lot of uh, new, new activity in the neurosciences. And what this study was, it didn't set out to have anything to do with psychology. It was a study that was operated, it was called the HERO study. And it was done by um, 45, I think it was 45 different uh, institutions or 45 researchers at many different educational institutions in the United States. And they studied 45,000 subjects. And the study had actually been initiated by the insurance industry because they were trying to find out what were the primary drivers of the increased cost in medical care. And everybody at that time was expecting it to have to do with smoking, um, you know, lifestyle, you know, diet, 
lack of exercise, you know, bad work habits, things like that. Everybody was looking for that kind of cause that could be uh, alleviated by wellness programs. And um, when the study emerged, and it's all self-reported, they would ask people, you know, when you, when you call a doctor, when you seek a doctor, you're like, what are some of the things that you're experiencing, that kind of thing? Well, stress and depression were so far ahead of any other causal factor on this study that it, it, it absolutely blew the minds of, of, of the entire you know, field of psychology and of the health field, because you know, who thought stress and depression was driving the cost of healthcare? But, it, but stress and depression has over time an effect on our physical well-being. And it's the underlying factor in a lot of chronic illnesses that people experience and they're constantly seeking treatment for. And they don't realize that if they alleviate their stress and their depression, a lot of their symptoms will start to diminish. So this, uh, this kind of, it was blew my mind too. I never expected this to come out. When this study came out, it kind of like we had just gotten there to start this institute, you know, for mental well-being. And it was perfect timing, you know, because we were there to address stress and depression. And, um, and yet, even after that study came out and it, nobody denied that it was a good study or that it revealed something important, it was very, very hard for um, the fields of psychiatry and psychology and, and general medicine in general to accept the idea that stress and depression had anything to do with the person themselves. They're, they then start looking outside for all the causes of stress and depression. You know, I wonder if it's, you know, the high divorce rate or the number of separated families or, you know, single mothers or poverty or, and all of those things, you know, are contributing factors to human misery, but not everybody who's poor is depressed. And, you know, it's, it's like it's, there, there was no correlation uh, when you looked at it. And, and uh, so we're still in the phase of trying to persuade uh, people that depression, if you can create a depression within yourself, you can solve it. That's the good news and the bad news. You know, the bad news is it has something to do with the innocent way that I've used my thinking for years or days or months or whatever. And the good news is it's my thinking. I'm the thinker. So it, if I've been using my thinking against myself because I didn't understand well, I can change my mind. Mm. And that's kind of, that's where we're heading now, I think, in the field. I, um, a couple of things that stand out to me that are interesting are, um, one is like, <clears throat> um, many people seem to think that because it's diagnosed by psychiatrists that um, they hold, you know, like people with a doctor's sort of qualification in high esteem. So it's sort of factual, you know, and it, or, or even they believe, oh, well, doctors of the highest level of education. So it must be true. You know, it's kind of like the diagnosis. And, um, and it's like the, the symptoms, you know, the diet, the, 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 the um, depression is like the symptom, you know, the symptom of the misunderstanding, you know, of creating it, but then the symptom becomes the problem. And then the problem becomes the reason for the experience. So people are saying, oh yeah, I've got this because of my depression as if it's a real thing. Right. And, 
and um, I read, I don't know if you've read it, The Book of Woe. Um, yeah, uh, I'm familiar with it. I haven't finished reading it, but I actually am reading it. Yeah, it was quite. It took me quite a while. It was quite a hard read, but like, if yeah. you like read that, I mean, it's a group of well. When they come to the diagnosis um, criteria, you know, it's a group of well-meaning psychiatrists like arguing about its six or its seven symptoms or its eight of these, and it should right. be three months. No, it should be six months, and it's like, right. yep, that's it. You know, like they come to this. Um, you know they agree on their illusion you know about what it is and then it becomes a diagnosis and goes in a book and becomes fact right right yeah it's kind of uh amazing you know the i used to teach a course in the history of uh the history of the understanding of well mental well-being and one of the things that that i would teach in my course which was always surprising to my graduate students was that up until the mid 1950s, there were no diagnoses. Mm. You know, there, the, the, the first diagnostic and statistical manual was published in I think 1956. And before that, there, there, it's not like there were no people that treated people with mental illness that goes way back in time, but uh, it was seen as a character flaw or as a defect or as, you know, nobody really thought about the causes too much or the, they just tried to help people. And there were kind of two branches of helping people historically. And one branch was those who said, you know, what people need is fresh air and sunshine and peace and quiet and love and understanding. And they can, you know, they, they heal themselves. And the other part that said, no, they need to be punished and taught and limited and restricted until they get over it. And so we had really, we had insane asylums or we had sanatoriums, you know, basically, depending on the, on the point of view. And as, as it became more um, scientific and they started to develop the DSM, the original DSM had, I think, uh, 80 some diagnoses in it. The most recent one has almost 400 diagnoses in it. So what has happened is that over time, as people have become more observant of the very many ways people use their thinking against themselves, they've named new diseases. <clears throat> you know, the new, they've just come up with, oh yeah, but now there's people that are, you know, oh, they sit in front of their computer all day long. And so we'll, we'll say there's a, such a thing as an addiction to gaming or there's, you know, and these are, then they get written up in these books. And so now that's a new diagnosis rather than a bad habit. You know, that people have an escapism. You could put, you know, a whole bunch of diagnoses under escaping from my own thinking as a category, but that's not one of the diagnoses. So it's interesting when you look at it from the standpoint of the innocent um, evolution of the idea is that we live in a world in which there's always got to be an outside reason for everything. And therefore, you can't. Uh, you can't simplify it because the world is very complicated and there's a zillion things that a person could get involved in or focus on or whatever <clears throat> that could start making them, <clears throat> excuse me for one second, I'll take a sip of water. That could start getting them worked up. So that what the principles have brought to the table is, is, is kind of switching the direction and saying, you know, if you fill your head with negative upsetting thoughts, it doesn't matter what, what the, what's the content of them. If the quality of that thinking is negative and upsetting and disturbing and frightening or you know, anxious, 
um, you're going to have feelings that match those thoughts. And those feelings are going to fit into some darn category in the DSM. You know, you'll do, you'll do behaviors that you wouldn't do if you felt okay. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I don't know anybody who, who is an addict who is basically generally a happy person. You know, addiction is an escape from the pressure of your own thinking. And people fall into it because it's as, as horrible as the consequences of addiction are in the moment, they, they're desperate for anything that would, will relieve them from the pressure of their own thinking and the, and the feelings they have associated with it. And they'll say it's it's worth the risk, you know. Basically, a risk assessment. They'll go, it's I, I got to do this. I can't I can't live like this. Mm. And they don't realize that they're you know creating a whole new set of problems until they've already created them. And that you know I don't know anybody that really manifests any symptoms um, that you can find in the DSM who, in a different state of mind, if they were at peace, and if they had an understanding of their own mind would manifest those same symptoms because that wouldn't make sense to them. Yeah. I, I, um, I like what you said about addiction because in my own work, you know, I often use the metaphor of a pressure cooker, you know, that it's yeah. kind of like if your your own thinking is the, is the pressure cooker, you know, the more you're thinking crazy stuff, you know, you need a steam valve to let the steam off. And that's what addiction is. You know, it's the steam valve of the, of the pressure cooker. And, um, you know, I guess that also it's like, um, it's very, I mean, the whole world of psychology and psychiatry is like where people look for help, you know, traditionally, it seems to be just the more well-known, more common, there's been money involved, there's been big pharmaceutical involved, there's been, oh, yeah. um, you know, the, the different development of the different talking therapies and so many of them over time that people just tend to look more in that direction first, you know, so any, anyone that I come across to work with have, have all been to a therapist, they've all been in 12 steps, they've been to self-help, they've been to personal development, they've tried, you know, many things and, and they've come to know, um, you know, come to no avail or come to a conclusion about themselves, something that they think is going to last a lifetime, because that's just how it looks to many yeah. people. Well, it's interesting to me that it does look that way to people, because any other thing that goes wrong with us, except a psychiatric diagnosis, we would fire our doctor. If, if I went to the doctor because I had the flu and several months passed and I didn't feel any better, I would go to another doctor. I would say, you don't know how to treat the flu. You know, I, this, this should have gone away by now, you know, or I must have something else. You're not doing any tests. You're not, you know, I don't want to be sick for the rest of my life. And so I would just fire my doctor and move on. But, you know, for some reason, if you have depression or anxiety or, something like that, it gets, you get labeled and then you think, oh, I have depression. I guess I'm screwed for the rest of my life. I'm gonna be on this medication. I know people who've taken medication for 30, 40 years. Mm. You know, that, that um, at this point, they're afraid to imagine not taking it because it's, it's built in, it's cooked into their thinking about it's the only thing that's keeping me going. And I, I think that that's, you know, and, and there is no other, um, there is no other kind of comparable in the medical world. People either, they, there are chronic illnesses like diabetes for which you have to take medications, but um, there aren't, most illnesses are things that are treatable or manageable and you're, you go back to your life. And so, um, 
you know, I think people have kind of lost sight of it to think that, you know, gee, no one who gets depressed and seeks help for depression asks themselves, you know, was I depressed my whole entire life up to this point or did I start getting depressed recently? And if I wasn't depressed before, then why wouldn't I be able to go back to that? Why wouldn't I be able to return to the state that I was in before? Mm. You know, and even people that have been depressed for a long time are not depressed 100% of the time they're depressed. You know what I'm saying? It's like they forget, you know, so that, that you know, if you ask somebody who says, I've been depressed for 15 years, well, did you ever go to the movies and kind of get lost in the story and find yourself laughing because it was funny or, you know, did you ever go uh, to somebody's house for dinner and start having a good time and kind of let go and feel better? Or, and people will remember t episodes in their life when they didn't, even though they were depressed, they didn't feel depressed right at that time. You know, and then I, you have to ask, well, where did that come from? How is it possible if this is an illness that you're going to be struggling with the rest of your life that you could have had that, you know, three hours when you felt pretty good or when you went on vacation with your sister and you kind of forgot everything and had a good time. And people go, I don't know, isn't that weird? It is kind of an aberration. <laughs> it, I'd love to add something. I, I think that what a catalyst of what you're talking about, you know, and what I found was the biggest impacting factor on my own transformation was someone that saw that that was possible someone that knew that was true about me you know like someone to point to that you know that right. what you're talking about that what there seems to be um and i've had this conversation many times and with different people that when there's somebody that doesn't buy your story no matter what that that sees the mental health in you that sees the perfection right. in everything and how the system works and under no circumstances do they falter from that you know you can feel it it's like a felt sense of like that this person really does know something about me that i don't know yet you know yeah. it's kind of like, but yeah. i can feel it you know it's kind of like and and i think for me that was the biggest catalyst or factor in in transformation that i uh, that even to this day now many years later still feels true you know that like because I was spent time with people who could really see that in me, who could really keep pointing me back to right. away from what wasn't true that I was making up and, and back to what was true. You know, it was like, that was for me what made such a difference, you know? Yeah. And, but, you know, and the nice part about the, doing work in the three principles that we do is that you, you can't see it in other people till you see it in yourself. So you know, when, when the better, the more uh, deeply we see the absolute perfection that is at the core of everybody, mm -hmm. and we see it in ourselves and really experience it, the more you can't miss it in other people. You know, and I, and I mean, I've worked with a lot of people with a lot of different probably in this work for a long time. So, um, you know, and, and I never see that. I always see, you need to look in people's eyes and you see the, the light of life and you see that, you know, that purity that's before they start getting themselves all worked up about their thinking. And my other thing to say about that is if you're talking to someone and you don't take them into the darkness, but keep going towards the light, they go there. You know, so if, if, if somebody, you know, like if I have a client who comes in and says, um, 
Yeah, but everybody that I've talked to has said that, you know, for example, I've, I've had, I work with women who have um, history of being in abusive relationships a lot. And they'll say, you know, but what is wrong with me? I just keep picking the wrong men. And they want to tell you 15 stories about the wrong men they've picked and how badly they've been treated. And I go, yeah, you know, that's, that's uh, a pattern. You know, we get in the habit of looking for certain things in people. But let's talk about, you know, today, you're not involved in a relationship. You're looking to start over. So why would you want to go back and rehearse all the mistakes you've made? Well, my therapist told me that's what I have to do. And I, you know, I won't go there. I just won't. You know, I'll say, you know, this, this is not therapy. This is mental health education. And in mental health education, uh, what I want you to do is to understand your own mental well-being and how to access it when you need it. And how to be have faith in it, and how to, how to recognize when you're making a bad choice before you make it. You know, to, to feel it in yourself, to see that we can all get caught up in th certain thoughts, but we notice it. There, we have ways to notice it, and people are so surprised that they can do it. You know, they they it's almost tentative at first, and then they get all excited about it. You know, it's like it's very sweet. Yeah, because. Like we're probably the first point of contact that's ever not confirmed the brokenness, you know, that's not yeah. said, yep, it's really bad. It's going to take a long time or, yeah. or, you know, you're never going to get over this, but we might be able to patch it up a little bit, you know, right. or something like right. that. And it's like right. that it, it, it's such a different experience for people that I, I've had people literally um, demanding to tell me the story, you know, and it's kind of like, and I said, look, I'll, I'll listen, but I really don't need to hear it. And they don't understand why I don't yeah. need to hear the story. They, they really yeah. struggle to get their head around that because they think that I need to know, you know, in order to be able to help them, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think there, there, we have to find a balance between listening enough to have the person know that you hear them and not getting so wrapped up in the story with them that it's all they want to talk about and they just can't stop. You know, they go deeper and deeper. And, mm -hmm. you know, everybody has a different situation. But often with clients, what I find is that when they start telling their story, you know, you can see it's bringing them down. Like they'll come in sort of hopeful because it's a new therapy, you know, and it's a new person to talk to. And, you know, you sit down and fix them a cup of tea or something and they're in a pretty, pretty good state and you chat with them a minute and then they start telling you their story and there you could see their little demeanor everybody they start drooping you know and mm. look sad and i'll point that out i'll say have you noticed that in the last 15 minutes as you've been talking to me that you feel worse now than you did when you came in mm -hmm. and you know i haven't said hardly anything so what, what do you think is doing that where's that coming from and the person will go well, i don't know but you know i just every time i have to tell my story and I'm going like, well, what makes you think you have to tell your story? Well, I've always had to tell other people ask me about it. And I said, well, what if I didn't ask you? I don't think I asked you. And they said, no, you're, you didn't. That's right. And so I've had people say, you mean I don't have to tell you my story? We could talk about something else. And I go, I'll go, yeah. And they'll go, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I'm so tired of my story. And it's kind of natural for people to feel that way to almost get a sense of relief when the past loses its power yeah. for them you know and it's funny i had a i had a client one time who actually like i shouldn't have even been seeing this person they she came into the women's resource center where i work and the person who told her to go ahead and wait and i would see her at the end of the day didn't 
wasn't trained in intake because normally somebody would have called an ambulance and had her taken to a mental health facility because she was suicidal, but she had a friend with her and her friend was keeping her there, you know, so she comes in to see me and it's a, it's, it's a long story, but she had basically just gone psychotic and, and, you know, uh, after 12 years of happy marriage and a normal life, some, suddenly she got an apartment in a town not too far from where she and her husband had a beautiful home and two lovely children. And she had, uh, you know, this floozy blonde wig and all these sexy clothes and she was picking up men and taking them back to her apartment and then doing that kind of on the side. And then she drained their retirement account um, just to buy clothes and take cruises and she would disappear for days on end and her husband finally, uh, you know, separated. And, um, and then somehow she ended up in, arrested for a DUI or something like that. And, and, and she woke up in jail and realized what, what her life had come to. And, and then she, you know, just wanted to kill herself. She just couldn't believe she had done that. And so she's sitting on the couch in my room that I see people. And she, she, all she could say was, who does that? I mean, her friend actually told me what she had done. She said, who does that? Who does that? Who does that? And I said, you know, people who are really caught up in a lot of very misunderstood thinking do that. And she, and that's where you were. So you did that. You got to, you got to accept that you did that, but you did that in a state of mind that you're not in now. So it looks really horrible to you. And, and she said, well, is that good or bad? And I said, well, I think it's pretty good that it looks horrible to you now. And it seemed like a good idea only a month ago. You know, I think that's progress in my book. And she actually laughed. She said, oh, I, I, I'm so upset. I never would see thinking of suicide as progress. And I said, well, suicide, the idea of suicide is a bad idea, but it came from your recognition that you can't identify with the, with whatever was going on with you when you did those things. And now you're thinking the only escape is to kill yourself where I'm gonna to talk to you about other ways that you can get through this. And, and but it's just, it was really, she did very well actually. It only took about three sessions and she, she, her husband wasn't trusting it enough to reconcile with her, but he did allow her to see her children. Mm-hmm. You know, she came to some some piece with things and she got her job back amazingly and um but what 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 i saw in her was you know the, the she was already on the path to redemption even though it was a funny path it took her to thoughts of suicide but that was you know she didn't do it she called a friend and her friend brought her for help and she waited with her friend even though she wanted to go home and take pills and she talked to me. So all of those to me were signs that her wisdom was breaking through and was, you know, that peaking all the, that little pilot light, you know, was, was burning a little brighter. And she, all she had to do was turn the switch and she would come back to life and realize, oh my gosh, I just, you know, I just got completely messed up with all this thinking that I didn't recognize I was doing. And, um, her friend was uh, shocked because she said, I thought this was going to be like a five years of misery and in and out of mental hospitals. And she said, you know, it was about five weeks later and she came back with her. It was her last appointment. And she came back with her and she said, honestly, I just cannot believe 
that that what's happened to her and she said to me i don't know what you did and i said see that's the thing i didn't do anything she was already doing it. She just didn't know what she was doing. And she did the work. She had to see, see it for herself. She had to find the beauty that was always there in herself. And I think that that's the, the key is for people to recognize that when you, um, when you go to a therapist, they're not going to fix you because the only, only way that we can resolve our own internal turmoil is to, find it find it find out about it ourselves and see beyond it ourselves but what we know as three principles practitioners is that it's there that that everybody has that capacity no matter what doesn't matter how bad it's gotten you know that still that little light never goes out until the end of life and then it you know who knows where it goes but you know that's uh I think that's the most wonderful thing in the whole world to discover that in people, to be able to look into somebody's eyes when they're suffering and see they're just a beautiful human being that's taken a lot of negative thinking seriously over time. And I, um, as well, for me, like the whole, whole of life seems about finding a solution to the depression, you know, like that your mind is consistently... Um, busy with the, the the effects of the the, the overthinking, the depression, you know, right. and and finding a way to get out of it and the solution, and w whether that looks like suicide or whether that looks like finding someone to talk to or whether that looks whatever, yeah. that, or taking substances, whatever it is, but then when someone sees or gets a glimpse of you know what's true, what's really true for them, and and then then there's no time or there's no um mental activity spent working out what to do with the depression anymore it's kind of like it opens up such a whole new possibility a new potential of life and people you know become more you know create get more into the creative flow of life and and do all sorts of things and build new relationships and have new lives like you said with that lady that you worked with you know it's like like i guess you saw what starts to happen to people and that's really magical to see you yeah. know that like w when they've got that space to allow wisdom and creativity just to flow through them what actually happens to people who have spent many like me like i'd spent 30 or 40 years you know suffering just to change you know like life to change unrecognizably yeah you know it's it's uh another story that came to mind that's so so sweet when uh dr pettit was coming to um west virginia he was leaving a practice behind in uh where he'd lived before in um north dakota's and he wanted to film some of his patients to use as teaching tapes, you know, when he was going to be working with um, psychiatrists and residents. So um, I went up to where he was and we got some patients lined up to talk to and then we, and I interviewed them on tape to have their stories. And then he would do their medical background, you know, as part of the teaching, he'd, he'd have their files there with all the medications they'd been on and what they'd done and so on. So there was this one woman that came in and she was probably in her late 60s, early, yeah, late 60s. And she was beaming. She was such an attractive person. You know, you'd look at her face and she had this beautiful smile. And she was there with her husband who was also beaming. And, and she tells this story that she had been depressed since shortly after they were married. So they got married in their early 20s and something happened 
with her and she couldn't even remember how it started, but she said, you know, suddenly I was just depressed and I took to the bed and I didn't, I could hardly get out of bed. It was a struggle. I never wanted to have people over. I never wanted to go anywhere. I never wanted to do anything. And she said, I guess they'd only been married like a little over a year when this started. And for 25 years, um, she was like that. She just, and, and, and I said, well, you know, so what did your husband do? She said, you know, he was very sweet. He, if I couldn't get up and cook dinner, he cooked dinner and he cleaned the house and he, he just let me be, but you know, he didn't know what to do, but he didn't ever turn on me. And she said, this went on for all these years. And she kept trying, she would try, you know, to force herself because he was being so nice and she couldn't understand why she was so depressed. And finally, uh, she heard about Dr. Pettit and that he came from a different approach. And a friend of hers insisted that she go see him. And at first she fought with him. She said, I thought he was stupid. I'd been to so many psychiatrists and been on so many medications. And everybody told me that it was my, I was, it was my brain chemistry was messed up and I'd never be the same again. And just, just stop, you know, just take the medicines and do the best I could. And Dr. Pettit was so you know, hopeful. And she said, he kept telling me, now look, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been depressed. What matters is that you're seeking help and that you're looking to see beyond that. And I can see it. I can see it in you. You're, you got it in you to change. And she said, and I kept thinking he's crazy. You know, he's some kind of, you know, faker, but she kept going back. And suddenly she saw it. You know, she had this, she said, and she wrote this beautiful poem about it. I wish I'd thought of it. I could read it, but I, I, I don't want to take the time to find it. But it was a lovely poem about how she got over her own thinking. And she wrote this poem and she brought it into his office one day and said, okay, finally, I'm, I think I'm starting to see. And it was just beautiful. And so the question that it kept occurring to me is like, to her husband is like, because he was so happy now, you know, they were traveling, they were having a wonderful time, they had friends, they were going to church, they were doing all the things that they never had done all those years. And so I said to her husband, I said, what kept you, what kept you going all that time? And he's so sweet. He was a quiet little man. He just looked at me and he said, you know, I just knew she was in there somewhere and she'd be back. Isn't that just the sweetest story? Yeah. Wow. And see, that's a person like he knew yeah. something that she didn't see in herself, you know, yeah. but him knowing it didn't do it for her because, but when she went to a psychiatrist who knew it, it did it for her. But it was so sweet. And everybody that saw that tape, you know, all the women that saw that tape would say, does he have a brother? Does he have, yeah. you know, well, that's, that's the man I want. Anyway. But it was such a sweet story. And I, I'll, I, and I thought to myself, you know, this woman's been depressed for more than half her life. And yet now she's vibrant and full of life. And it's like it never happened. And she can laugh about it. And she totally understands. And she doesn't hold it against herself. Mm. That's the other key is you can't, you got to be able to forgive yourself when you discover that you've filled your head with thoughts that you, if you'd known better, you would never have done if you had understood the way we use our minds, you wouldn't have done that. Um, you know, you can't be blaming yourself. You have to realize the innocence and in the way we use our thinking. 
And then when you realize that and you think you just become very grateful that we, oh, now I see. And now that I see, I can't, I won't do it to myself again because I'll, I'll see it coming. I'll notice step, step aside, you know, mm. but it's, it's very, it's so simple that people have a hard time imagining it when they're caught up in a lot of complicated thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point about the simplicity of what we're talking about, isn't it? That it's like people are so conditioned, um, especially the ones that think, you know, about the medical doctors and the diagnosis and the real thing. And they've been to so many different people. It's like, it looks like the more they search, the more complex the answer they're going to, you know, they're looking for a more complex answer. So when you when you face them with some real simple uh, misunderstanding of how it how the mind really works and how they create their own depression with their own thinking it's kind of like, no that that can't be that that's way yeah. too simple you know yeah it's so funny when you say when you say to somebody you know you have the answer you know the answer you just don't know you know it yet they're yeah. like well if i knew the answer i wouldn't have been depressed for 30 years well yeah you would if you hadn't discovered the answer yet <laughs> you know it's like it's like if you take a course when you're in your 60s, let's say you take a course in physics and you never understood how the physical universe worked. And now you know, well, you didn't know before, but you saw it. When you saw it in the class, you went, oh, yeah, that's how it works. No, well, that explains a lot. You know? <laughs> and it is that simple. People just wake up and they go, oh, yeah, okay. I see what, I, I see what happened. And then, you know, then you get deeper and deeper into it as you start to really feel you know, the spiritual power of being, being the thinker and, you know, that, that, that we are creating our own experience of life moment to moment to moment. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. That's an amazing power because we always have, no matter where we are, what's going on, the power to change. And we never lose that. That's the little pilot light. We never lose that but we can't always access it because we don't always know to turn the knob, you know, if we're looking for the wrong answers. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end, you know, from, from complex, you know, overwhelming solution to real simple answers, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's, um, it's the only place to look really, you know, for, for something that's seemed so um, out of reach, you know, for so long. Right. So thank you. Thanks for doing this. I'm sure I could have carried on for, <laughs> I could have carried on for ages. It was a, a, um, a great conversation and some, and some beautiful stories in there. Yeah. So thank well, you for doing this with me. No, and, um, thank you so much, Jason. And thank you for the contribution you're making to people. I think it's beautiful that you're doing this podcast and reaching so many people. Yeah. So, and it's, um, how, how would people get hold of you? I will put it in the, I'll put it on the episode. Yeah. How people get well, um, the easy way to get hold of me is my website, which is very simple. It's www3, the little word three dash principles.com. Yep. And there's a contact me uh, page there and a lot of blogs and all kinds of free stuff you can look at. Yep. And I also now have just recently started a podcast too, and it's called psychology has it backwards, but there's a link to that on my website. So. Awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll put links to that on the, um, on the, yeah. when I put it up there so people can find it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Brilliant. Thank you very much. You're welcome.